Welcome to the three o'clock session with Danny Bates. Kyle Click, uh, one of our present students, is going to lead us in prayer. Ken Dottie is going to uh, lead us in song. And I'm going to have Ken lead us in song first, and then Kyle, if you'll follow with a prayer. And uh, then I'll introduce the fellow whose office is next to mine, Danny Bates. we all at the back? <laughs> all right, you're going to have to sing loud. 732, we praise thee, O God. Shall we sing? <clears throat> we praise thee, O God, for the Son of thy love, for Jesus who died and is now God above. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Hallelujah, amen. Hallelujah, thine the glory. Revive us again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful to be here this afternoon. We're so grateful for the amazing day we've had so far. And Father, help us to stay focused during this next session as Brother Donnie presents a, a message from your word, Father. Help us to stay focused, stay attentive, Father, and help us to take something from this lesson. And we're, again, so grateful for today and the blessing of this lectureship. And Father, uh, thank you for your son most of all. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Kyle and Ken. The uh, lectureship has been very interesting in that uh, we had to put it off for a full year. But I've noticed that in the material that's being presented, and I don't know, we certainly didn't plan for it, it is so appropriate. It's just perfect for this time period because we have all sorts of problems uh, out in the world and those problems, of course, always seem to find their way into the church, which you find in the world will end up in the church. And certainly the division and lack of unity and difficulty, uh, argumentation going back and forth, we see within the body and we're looking at the church of Corinth or we're looking at the church in 2021. And, and the material has just been so appropriate. But it's my honor to introduce Donnie to you, Donnie Bates. Uh, Donnie and I got to know each other when Donnie was a student here at Bear Valley. And Donnie Bates is originally from McCurtain County, Oklahoma. He's a graduate of the Bear Valley Bible Institute, Institute holding bachelor's and master's degrees from that institution. He's married to his wife, Noma, and they have one daughter, Jessica. He and his family have served congregations in Colorado, Texas, Missouri, and Oklahoma. Donnie Noma also served as missionaries in Chile, South America. Currently, Donnie is Dean of Academics and Instructor in the Bear Valley Bible Institute in Denver, Colorado. He also serves as one of the shepherds of the Bear Valley Church of Christ. And Donnie and I are, are both elders here at Bear Valley, so we have that connection. 
And like I say, his office is right next to me over in the institute area. And I don't even have to get on the telephone to talk to him because the walls are so thin over there that we can talk in a normal voice back and forth to one another. And Wayne Berger's on the other side. And it's the same way. Uh, the walls are so thin. But Donnie is a, a, a tremendous Bible student. He loves the word. Uh, conversations you have with Donnie, he's going to refer back to the word when those matters are, are important matters. And uh, really adds, uh, of course, to the eldership because of his attitude towards God's word. But I've always uh, enjoyed Donnie, been around Donnie and Noma and Jessica. And they, he has a fine family, and he's a, a fine, fine gospel preacher. Love him very dearly, and not saying, not wanting to say any more. Uh, here's Donnie. Thank you, Dave, for that introduction. I have to say, as as others have said in the lectureship so far, that. I was a little nervous about Dave introducing me because uh, he is the Dean of Students, but he was also the Dean of Students 40 years ago when Dennis and I were students here. And so he probably knows a few things he could have said that I would just assume he had not. But I appreciate uh, those very kind words. If you have not figured it out yet in this lectureship so far, context is a very important ingredient of this great book of 1 Corinthians. You know, one uh, uh, of the things that I, I've noticed in listening and, and paying more attention and learning some things from lessons that have been already presented here, uh, you look at chapters 12, 13, and 14 of this book. And in, beginning in chapter 12, we're talking about spiritual gifts. And there's a list of gifts that are given. And then the point is made that these gifts all function in the body of Christ by one spirit. Because we are all, by one spirit, baptized into one body. And he goes on to talk about how the, the, the members of the body are disparate. They're different. They differ from one another, but they still function the way God intends them to function because of these different gifts but he ends that chapter 12 by saying but there's a better way a still more excellent way and as brother bart did in our in our last lesson last hour so so uh, uh, well he pointed out that better way is love the greatest gift of all of the gifts and as we move into chapter 14 where we're going to be uh, um, studying this in this lesson the point is this if we put that greatest gift into effect, if we use that, if we have the love for one another that we should have, even though we are so different, we all, even today in the 21st century, have different abilities, if not the, uh, the miraculous gifts that the first century church had, but we still today have different abilities. If we love one another, use that greatest gift, then the body of Christ, the church of our Lord, is going to function the way God designed it to function, and that is it's going to grow. And that 
brings us really to the topic of this lesson, creating an assembly that edifies. You know, one of the very fundamental principles of church growth really concerns that very topic. Creating assemblies, we call them worship services, but assemblies that edify. If our worship service resembles more closely a funeral service, there are not many people who are long going to put up with that kind of thing. And the church will die. Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 24 gives us the idea that our worship service is designed to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. That is our outreach one to another. Obviously, of course, our worship service is designed for us as a corporate body to offer praise to God. But in offering that praise to God, we edify one another. We stimulate one another to love and good deeds. And that fits very well with the idea of creating an assembly that edifies. The concept of edification is central to God's plan for the church we find throughout uh, scripture. Ephesians chapter 4 focuses on, using a phrase from verse 12 of that chapter, building up the body. Even in the immediate context of this particular lesson, in 1 Corinthians 14 and verse 26, that will be uh, covered later. We find, let all things be done for edification. God designed the body to grow or to die. And it really doesn't make any difference if we're talking about the physical human body or the spiritual body of Christ. Now, there are many aspects of church life that serve to edify the church. When the church began, those first Christians were continually devoting themselves to a number of things. The apostles' doctrine, scripture, God's word, and partaking of that spiritual food, particularly uh, when we dig deep into the word of God, that, that is a tremendous source of energy to edify the soul of both individual Christians and the body as a whole. The early church was devoted to fellowship and in in verses uh, 43 through the first part of verse 47 of Acts chapter 2, there are numerous examples of how they, they were part of each other's lives on a daily basis. They were devoted <clears throat> excuse me, to the breaking of bread. They were devoted, and, and we understand that, that that term can even be used of a common meal, but I'm pretty sure that the rest of the city of Jerusalem, who was not part of this brand new church that had just begun, was still continually devoting themselves to partaking of meals on a regular basis. So this seems to be something else. It seems to be what we, what we term the Lord's Supper. And that was a part of edifying the body because they were part of each other's lives in doing that. And they were devoted also to prayer. And this aspect of early church worship is also a very, a very clearly a vital part or a vital factor in the building up of the body, the edification of the church. That church, the New Testament church, that church that we try so hard to emulate and to be was being built up, was being edified from the very beginning of its existence. Our text for this lesson is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verses 1 through 19. And that text is concerned with creating a worship assembly 
that edifies, or more specifically from the text itself, not creating a worship assembly that does not edify. The spiritual gifts of prophecy and, this, the, and speaking in tongues seem to be the focus or are the focus of this text. Those, were, those miraculous gifts were in existence, were available to Christians of the first century. And since these spiritual gifts, the miraculous gift of prophecy, the miraculous gift of tongues, are no longer available to us, someone must inevitably ask the question, is there an application that we can make to the 21st century church? I would argue that there is. And this lesson is going to show that. The application of this text, of 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 19, for us today, is that in order to edify the church, our communication of God's word must be clear. Must be clear. The Apostle Paul is going to use a comparison of these two gifts, speaking in tongues and prophecies, to make these points. First, the gift of prophecy was superior to the gift of tongues even in the first century. Second, that there was a clear reason that speaking in tongues was an inferior gift to prophecy. And third, that without clear communication, there is no edification. I want us first to explore this idea that the gift of prophecy was more important than the gift of tongues, even in the first century. The Apostle Paul begins this text by giving two commands. Pursue love and desire or strive for spiritual gifts. Now remember, he had been describing in chapter 12 spiritual gifts. Then he set up thir chapter 13 by, by talking about uh, or uh, promising a more excellent way than describing the greatest gift of love. Pursue, strive for spiritual gifts. Now those are imperatives in this text. But he adds an interesting caveat. After giving these commands, he says, but especially that you may prophesy. That's in verse 1. And in, in, the, in those first five verses of the text, the point is made very clear that the gift of prophecy is superior to the gift of speaking in tongues. And to understand Paul's point, really, we, we really should take a, a moment to better understand what is meant by the, ter the terms tongues and prophecy. First of all, tongues referred to in passages like this text, Acts chapter 2, are merely describing, or that merely refers to different languages, languages known by people of other regions, other cultures, other countries, continents for us today. That was necessary at the founding of the church in Acts chapter 2 because there were so many out-of-town visitors in Jerusalem who were attracted by that sound of a mighty rushing wind. And they spoke different languages. And they were astonished to hear these, these uh, 12 apostles to, uh, speaking to them in their own languages. Well, that helps us understand what Paul says in our context here. If speaking in tongues is the ability to speak in another language, and it really doesn't make any difference whether we're, we mean that gift is miraculously attained or by some other means. 
if that is what it is, then it makes perfect sense, does it not? That it is not an effective way to conduct a worship service in a language different than the language that is spoken by the people who are in that assembly. Second, the gift of prophecy can be described, one scholar describes it as inspired speech. Rather than the speakers here at, uh, in this lectureship speaking those words that we have prepared to speak, in the miraculous gift of prophecy, we would just let God speak through us. It would be a lot, been a lot easier. Uh, probably uh, more um, homiletical, as a matter of fact. I'm not sure. So the gift of prophecy was the miraculous ability to speak God's inspired word to the church. Paul's point in this text is that that gift of prophecy was to be more sought after, the more sought after gift of these two in the early church. Now the reason that's given as to why prophecy should have been desired over tongues is given by a series of comparisons that we find in the text here. Speaking in a foreign language to someone who does not understand that language would be of very little value. I don't know how many of you have traveled in, uh, to other parts of the world where a different language is spoken and tried to communicate in some way, somehow, with a taxi driver, for example, or someone at the airport to try to direct you to another place. It can be very frustrating. There's not a lot of communication that goes on there. Uh, interestingly enough, frustration is something that communicates in any language. Uh, but we still haven't found out where the uh, grocery store is or where it is we're trying to go. Setting aside the miraculous nature uh, of, uh, of this gift, even today, as we've just described, someone who speaks another language may impress a hearer with uh, an ability, but someone who does not understand that language, but no one would claim that real communication is happening in such a case. Paul is going to say a few verses down in this context, in verse 14, that if he prays in a tongue, not even his own mind is edified, meaning it's unfruitful, which would seem to indicate that not even the one speaking in the tongue necessarily understood what he or she was uh, or what God was communicating through, he, through him or her. On the other hand, one who is speaking God's word as it is revealed to him is able to edify all those who hear and communicate that power that is found within that word, which Paul said in another place in Romans chapter 1 and verse 16 is God's power to save. That Jesus said would set the souls of men free. That truth that is found, John 8 and verse 31 and verse 32. So that inspired message, spoken in the language understood by the hearers, was good, quote, for edification, exhortation, and consolation, verse 3 of our text. The one who had the gift of tongues would not be able to edify anyone except himself, if he did understand. That would seem to indicate uh, from what is said there in verse 5, that at least some of those who had the gift of tongues also had a gift of interpretation and would be able to understand. On the other hand, one who had the gift of prophecy had the ability to edify all who heard a truly inspired message from God. And Paul very clearly says 
that the one who prophesies is greater than the one who speaks in tongues, and the reason is clear. So what would be the application for us? That's a fair question. There are those in the religious world today who claim to have one or both of these miraculous gifts and others as well. <clears throat> well, the temporary nature of the miraculous spiritual gifts described in chapter 12 <clears throat> that had to do with, uh, and also 13, that had to do with the revelation of God's word. I'm talking uh, specifically about the gift of prophecy, the gift of tongues, and the gift of knowledge. That was covered in our, uh, uh, our previous lesson. However, the relevant aspect of that discussion would have to be what the apostle says in our text here about the relative value of the gifts of prophecy in tongues. Clearly, the gift of prophecy would be of more value than the gift of tongues. That, that's not a difficult uh, concept for us to, uh, to understand. And the reason for that is God wants his church to be edified, to be built up. That's the way he designed the body, is to be built up, to be strengthened, to grow. And that will require clear communication of his word. In one of the classes that we have here now at the Institute uh, that I happen to be teaching right now this quarter <clears throat> is English composition. And one of the things that I, uh, some of the, my students may say pound continuously is what we are about, what we who are ministers of God's word, preachers of God's word are about, whether we are writing, whether we are preaching, whatever the situation is, is communication, specifically communication of God's word. And hand in hand with that is a little thing called clarity. It must be clear. It must be clear. Therefore, it is incumbent upon those of us who would be so bold as to proclaim God's word. Make, it is incumbent upon us to make sure that such communication is accurate, that it really is God's word and not one's own opinion. 1 Peter 4 and verse 11, speaking as it were the utterances or the oracles of God. <clears throat> And that it is done so clearly, easy to understand. Paul's not finished, however, with illustrating his point about tongues. Now he discusses the reason why tongues were inferior. One gets the idea from Paul's continued emphasis here of this point that there was a problem in the Corinthian church. I think it's pretty easy to understand that. There was a problem concerning the spiritual gifts, especially these two. It almost sounds as though even then the gift of tongues was viewed as the flashier of the spiritual gifts because people could see that and it looked more impressive. If this problem of a possible misunderstanding of the purpose and nature of the gifts existed in Corinth, that might explain why Paul felt a need to, or the Holy Spirit through Paul felt a need to hammer this point, uh, continue to drive it home. His clear statement is, Paul's, that there is no profit, there's no benefit, there's no edification in trying to communicate in a tongue that is not understood by the hearers. 
Now, whether Paul had the gift of tongues or not, and we're going to see later in what he writes that he does, he did, the only edification that would result would come from revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching, verse 6. All of which were on the list of spiritual gifts given back in chapter 12, verses 8 through 10. And to illustrate his point, Paul uses a very common sense argument from the physical world that both Christians and uh, Christians then and we can easily understand. Musical instruments in the hand of a master can produce some of the most beautiful sounds the human ear can experience in this life, but only when played correctly. Have you ever heard a symphony orchestra warm up? Or even a high school band? Maybe for this point, especially a high school band. It's not exactly riveting entertainment, is it? Now, perhaps my daughter will forgive me for making this particular illustration, but I think every parent of a band student can identify with this point when our memories return to those days of our children first learning to play their instrument, their chosen instrument. And there was a lot of attempts made back in that child's bedroom and a lot of squinting and flinching in the other room where the rest of the family's gathered. You understand the point that I'm making? And of course we know that's how they get to be good because they're learning to make that clear sound. Well, that's how Paul illustrates the effectiveness or the lack thereof of speaking to an audience in a language the audience doesn't understand. And if you still don't get the point, he makes the clear point with a question and answer. Verse 9, unless you utter by the tongue speech that is clear, how will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air. You're not speaking to me. You're not speaking to your brethren. You're not building anyone anyone up. It's useless. And the problem was not that the gift of tongues had no value. It would have been a great value to Christians who were dispersed by persecution or just circumstances who went into all the world so that the gospel, quote, was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, Colossians 1 and verse 23. There would have been great benefit to those missionaries who were taking the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, to be able to preach the saving gospel of Jesus Christ to people in other languages without having to spend months or even years learning those languages, having served as a missionary in South America. I can relate to the desire to have the gift of tongues so that one could begin preaching that truth that sets men free as soon as the foot landed on foreign soil. I remember the conversation our mission team had in Chile not long after we had arrived with a denominational missionary and his family. And he told us in that conversation that he was actively praying for the gift of tongues for this very reason. Now, if I remember correctly, he and his family had already been there for a year. So there's a little bit of a question in my mind, why are you still praying for the gift of tongues? You probably could have learned it by now. But it seemed to me then 
that his and our time would be better spent in working hard to, to assimilate and learn the language as quickly and efficiently as possible so as to be about the Father's business of evangelism. And it was hard work, very hard work. It was frustrating to have to work like that and not be able to preach. After a few months, I was able to write out a sermon and then read it. But it was almost a year, it was 10 full months before I felt confident enough that I had the language understood enough. It was hard work to do that. And this really is the application that we can take from our text. Speaking in tongues, even in the first century, seems to have been the flashier gift. Being able to speak in a foreign language today seems to have that same effect for some. Some people want to hear uh, other, those who have traveled or those who speak another language speak in that language. For some reason, it seems more, uh, that, that's more of a thing in, uh, in a church setting. We want our missionary to speak in uh, a language, the language that, that he's learned. Oh, they want their, the children of the missionary to say something to grandpa in Spanish. And I know at least in one case, the grandchild said, why? Grandpa doesn't speak Spanish. If a child can understand that, why can we not understand that? God's concern both then and now was and is that his church be edified, built up, that the eternal saving gospel of Jesus Christ be proclaimed clearly and distinctly. In, in verse 8, the, the apostle Paul expounds on his point using musical instruments in a way that we ought to take to heart. He says, for if the bugle produces an indistinct sound, who will prepare himself for battle? Brethren, as Christians, we are soldiers of the cross who have been instructed elsewhere to take up the full armor of God. Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 13, to fight the good fight of faith. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. We ought to be preparing ourselves and our brethren for this fight. And part of that preparation must be the clear clarion call to arms. I appreciate Dave mentioning in his introduction how appropriate the lessons of this lectureship have been for the times in which we live. They are. And they should sound that clear clarion call to arms to fight the good fight, to do what God intends for us to do. Our goal must be to obey the command of this section of our text. In verse 12, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Let me ask you this. Do you seek to abound for the edification of the church, of your congregation, of this congregation? Is that your goal? I, I've heard uh, a mention in uh, many lessons so far this weekend about preparing ourselves for worship and what's involved in, in uh, should be involved in part of our minds, part of our thinking as we worship. Is being devoted to the edification of the church part of that? Are we, the rest, stimulating you to love and the good deed of calling each other to arms to prepare ourselves? If we go out into the work week 
as we begin on Monday after a worship assembly on Sunday, are we prepared to do battle? We should be. That doesn't mean to be combative. That doesn't mean to be mean and ugly. It means to be ready to do battle with our true enemy, not the captives of our true enemy. Those are the ones that we see. Those are the ones that we talk to every day who are not saved. They are merely captives of our enemy. We must do battle with the enemy. You see, without clear communication, there is no edification. In the last seven verses of our text, the apostle continues to hammer this point that clarity of communication is vital to faithfully communicating God's word. Even if a Christian of that time possessed the gift of tongues, he was to pray that he may interpret. Isn't that interesting? Here we've got the flashy gift. I can speak in this language. Wow, when did you go over there? I've never been there. The Holy Spirit is the one that helps me speak that language. Wow, that's, that's pretty neat. And he says, pray that you may interpret. Because it's really not about speaking the language. It's about communicating the word. Jesus was clear that bearing fruit is necessary for one to be considered acceptable to God. Matthew chapter 3 and verse 10. Verse 14 of our text here in uh, chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians would indicate that the one praying in a tongue doesn't even understand the tongue himself. I mentioned that a little bit earlier. And that would be unfruitful. A condition no faithful Christian wants to experience. Understanding the importance of edification. Getting this point that without clear communication there's no edification becomes crucial to our understanding of this text. And to make this application for the modern church, we return to the title of this lesson. Creating an assembly that edifies. When we pray, when we sing, we are to be engaged in acts of worship that edify. That means that when we pray, we should not use meaningless repetition, as Jesus said not to do in Matthew 6 and verse 7, or words that are or, or uh, could be misunderstood. That also means, by the way, you men, when you are leading a congregation in prayer, speak up and speak clearly. I don't know how many times I've been in worship services where we didn't have a prayer leader, we had a prayer sayer, and most of the rest of us didn't pray anything unless we had the initiative to go ahead and say our own prayer because we couldn't hear anything. It means that when we sing, in order to be truly edified, we ought to understand what it is that we're singing. And that's why it might be good from time to time to, uh, to take a little time and explain certain archaic uh, or unfamiliar phrases like, here I raise my Ebenezer. It might be good to explain what that means. The meaning of Paul's words here is that unless we pray and sing in a way that's understandable, our minds are unfruitful. There's no edification taking place. Let's make some application. If a congregation hosts a visiting missionary from another part of the world who speaks another language, he might impress the congregation with his ability to preach in that language. After all, as I said, 
It takes a lot of time and a lot of hard work to be able to do so fluently. However, of what use is it to preach the greatest sermon that was ever preached if no one understands it? It's of no use at all. And Paul used a similar argument to begin chapter 13 about love. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I become a noisy gong and a clanging cymbal. Now, he wasn't talking about clarity there. He was talking about love. But the same would be true if he changed it to talk about clear communication. just doesn't make sense. When everything is considered, it becomes pretty clear that God's purpose and design for worship is that the church be edified. Edification cannot happen in a language, a tongue, if you will, that is unfamiliar to those in attendance. The spiritual gifts of the first century that were available to the, to the church all had their use and their value. All came from, from God. All were intended to be of use Uh, for the benefit of the church. The abilities and talents of Christians today have their use and their value. God has blessed his children in today's world with a variety of such abilities. But not all of those abilities are, are appropriately used in the worship assembly. And the reason for that is not that such abilities are are worthless. The reason a talent that one person has might not be appropriate in worship, the reason or say the fact that uh, a person may have such an ability and it not be appropriate for worship service is that it simply does not work for the edification of the church. There are many talents on display in the world of sports or art that I admire and maybe sometimes just a little bit envy. However, the ability to play a favorite sport or create a work of art like Rembrandt or Van Gogh and and others like them is not going to serve to edify the church. There's nothing wrong with those talents at all. But our concern is edification. When it comes to building the church as God intends for us to do, we must strive to abound for the edification of the church, as Paul tells us in this text. And when we speak of worship, we should be working hard to create assemblies that edify. Thank you very much for your kind attention.